Hey folks, you're listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who manage poisoning. And I'm your host, emergency medicine pharmacist and clinical toxicologist, Ryan. Now, today is a different type of episode than normal. It's not our usual deep dive into the history, science, and management of a poison. We invited on a guest, a clinical mentor, friend, and colleague of mine. Today is just two people with a background in managing emergencies and poisonings, as well as pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, attempting to answer some of the many unknown questions about toxicology that still exist, and having clinical discussions around some cases of severely poisoned patients. Full disclosure, some of this is entirely theoretical, no evidence beyond our own brains trying to think up answers, but we do our best to support statements with evidence when we can. So the first half of the show, we're going to answer some questions from, well, the internet. Unfortunately, most people asking questions on the internet are asking about how to use illicit drugs. It should be no surprise to you that a toxicologist's workload often involves managing the toxicities from said illicit drugs in patients who are using them. So while we use these questions as a platform to address the pharmacologic and theoretical considerations behind the questions, we are not advocating for anyone to use illicit drugs. It exposes any user to risk of serious health effects, contaminated products, and unregulated doses. If you are struggling with a substance use disorder, please check out SAMHSA.gov or call 1-800-662-4357 for a free information line to help you find the treatment that you deserve. With that said, we will be covering a variety of topics. What causes false positives for fentanyl? Why do certain drugs have paradoxical effects, where higher doses seem to have actually a diminishing effect? Are people ingesting illegal tryptamines like LSD at a higher risk for severe toxicities such as serotonin syndrome if they're already on a serotonergic agent? Or what is the baseline risk anyways? Is that something we can measure? Then, during the back half of the episode, we review some cases of severe poisoning and discuss the differentials for what could have caused these toxicities. Now, I know there's a fair amount of non-medical listeners to this podcast, so I wanted to give fair warning. There's no plain language summary. We use the full medical jargon. So you might get a little lost today, but it might still be entertaining to listen to, and hopefully you can hear a little bit more about the kinds of things we think about when addressing these questions. (sighs) Now I have to apologize for something. The microphones did not cooperate during the entire show. So... There are some spaces where the sound jumps around. I'm sorry about that. If you are an audiophile, prepare to be offended. Promise we'll fix it for next time. Okay, without further ado, let's roll the episode. This is Ryan, your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, and you are listening to The Poison Lab. And today we have a special guest with us. Toxo is unplugged in the closet, not hanging out with us today. Today we have the one and only Matthew Stanton with us. PharmD, BCPS, D-A-B-A-T. Happy to be here. This is uh, uh, a welcome guest, uh, Matt is a clinical mentor of mine. He was the first pharmacist trained in Wisconsin to take the uh, diplomate of the American Board of Applied Toxicology exam. So he's the first clinical toxicologist trained out of Wisconsin. 
Uh, Matt works as an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist. He's also a assistant professor, uh, division of emergency medicine and medical toxicology. And a practicing clinical toxicologist helping to manage poisonings and overdoses. Uh, and just thrilled to have him here today. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the introduction. I'm happy to be here. How's it been since I uh, saw you two hours ago? Been good. Two and a half hours ago. Matt and I just spent the last few hours teaching our new learners, mm-hmm. our new PGY2 EM pharmacy residents. We had EM boot camp today where uh, we, we ran some oral the mock patient drills, which is a good time. Uh, putting our residents through the ringer in terms of some of the disease states they might encounter in the emergency department, like arrhythmias or you know shock, resuscitation. I thought it went well. No, I think it did too. Well, I think it's a great idea. I mean, we worked in some teaching points and, you know, it's like quick and it's EM and talks and like, you got to think on your feet and like, it's, it's fun stuff. I think all the fingertip knowledge you need in the ER. Yeah, no, I think it's really, I think it's helpful. Oh, I got some news for you. What's that? Uh, Well, we'll see if this is still relevant by the time this comes out, but well, you are familiar with the outbreak of vaping-related pulmonary injuries, e-cigarette and vaping-associated lung injury, or EVOLI. Yeah. Well, they just arrested somebody oh boy. who was distributing $2 million a month of THC vape cartridges associated with e-cigarette and vape-associated lung injury. Do you want to know where they arrested him? <sighs> Did I tell you this already? No, but well, they arrested some people down in southern, southeastern Wisconsin, didn't they? Yeah, no, 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 no. Well, I guess you could call this southeastern Wisconsin because it was one floor below me. Ah. <laughs> no way. Are you kidding? I know. It was insane. What? Uh, well, they actually, so they originally arrested this person about a mile from me. And then when they got arrested, they, I guess, got evicted from their apartment. Um, and then moved into my building. And then they wrote up the, the Wall Street or Wisconsin Journal Sentinel, whatever, picked up a story about it. And they wrote in the story, they were talking about e-cigarette and vape associated lung injury. So for those who don't know, Matt and I have been tracking this outbreak pretty closely. Uh, we both, we've, we've co-presented webinars on it a couple of times. And we've recently, we're doing a research project and we've published on this. Um, but anyway, so this guy gets arrested. And they run this big news story about it, you know, guys selling illicit vape cartridges that may be linked to the Uvali outbreak. And they look for a health official to give a little piece about how vapes can actually affect your health. And who do they ask? The State Department of Health Services, John Myman, who's the co-author uh, with us on a paper about what the source of Uvali could actually be. And the source was one floor below me. <laughs> Holy cow. What, what do you call that when it's... Uh, Ironic? Big? I have literally interviewed patients about what kind of vape products they use, yeah. you know, where they get them, and turns out it's from my neighbor. So that's, it's a little breaking yeah. badass, yeah, I would say. That, that is... Wow. Anyways, welcome to the Poison Lab. <laughs> We're going to be doing uh, something a little bit different than normal. Normally, you know, we, we, we've tackled some subjects. Uh, there's really not a set... <laughs> I guess there's no real set plot for these episodes yet. So we're, we're still finding our voice, finding what people like, but uh, today we're going to do something different. Today is going to be 
uh, we're going to do some clinical cases. Um, so Matt and I are going to bounce a couple of clinical cases off each other. We're going to try to hide what the toxin is and see if the other person can guess it. And we're going to source these cases from fatality reports uh, that have been published in the American Association of Poison Control Centers. Uh, and I think it's good learning, you know, listening to the differentials. Not trying to make light of any fatalities, but uh, it certainly highlights that some of these things can be super toxic. Uh, and then uh, we're going to do something else, which is called Toxicologists versus the Internet, where uh, we, we do our best to answer some questions from reddit.com, uh, the subreddit, Ask Drugs because there are some really wild questions that show up on that board. Uh, in fact, Matt and I actually tried a version of this earlier. Uh, we actually recorded an episode like this before. Um, the audio didn't turn out, unfortunately, but we really got derailed right away because one of our first questions about the internet was we found someone who took 15 grams of Tylenol and they had just posted it three minutes ago and they were wondering if they would be okay. So we went on a deep dive convincing that person to go to the ER. And as it turned out, they lived in a country halfway across the world. But fortunately, they did go in and seek medical care. But that threw us through a loop. So this time, instead of just choosing random questions, we have uh, we have each pre-selected a question unbeknownst to the other and decided uh, we're going to pitch them at each other and see um, wh what we end up going with. So uh, what do you think we should start with, Matt? You want to do cases? You want to do some internet questions? Let's uh, let's start with cases. The internet cases? questions can be a little, uh, be a bit of a gamble sometimes. So a bit of a gamble. Hmm. Well, I kind of had a plan that we were going to do internet questions first. <laughs> okay. I'm just excited to hear you tackle these questions, man. Is that okay? That's fine. I already have some lined up. Here's a question from Reddit.com. Ask drugs false positives for fentanyl it says i have been sober since october 31st 2018 and today i tested positive for fentanyl does anyone really know what could cause a false positive for this drug i don't see a lot of information on the interwebs about the possibility of this and to be honest it's really starting to make me nervous if anyone has any knowledge on the subject uh and could help me find the answers as to why or how this could have happened, I would really appreciate the help. Thanks, Reddit. All right, false positives for fentanyl. I don't know, what are you thinking, man? Obviously, aside from potential fentanyl derivatives, I mean, nothing comes to mind as, as far as false positives for this. I'm also wondering about the methodology of the, the testing that's happening here. I. Right. I mean, I, you know, our institution doesn't use immunoassay fentanyl tests. I'm not sure how many other places out there do. Um, I don't imagine that there's some. Yeah. I mean, yeah, probably. I, I, I mean, that's a, uh, that's a fantastic question. All right. I did a little research. So you're right for half of it. <laughs> Obviously, you got to consider the fentanyl analogs. So I'm assuming it's probably a urine drug screen. And if this is like a clinic, it's probably an enzyme-linked immunoassay urine drug screen. So for the listeners, I think we've gone over this before in other episodes, but immune assays are, you know, 
you're using essentially an antibody uh, that is designed to target a specific fragment of a molecule. And certain other molecules can contain those fragments and look enough like it that it'll trigger a false positive. So for instance, pantoprazole, which is an over-the-counter stomach acid medicine, triggers false positives for THC. Same with naproxen. You know, there's enough similarity in their chemical structure that this enzyme is a little bit blind to it. It is not a super specific assay. It's also somewhat insensitive too. Um, so something with enough structural homology to fentanyl could in theory uh, trigger a false positive. So I did find one study. Oh, wow, this is fascinating. So I found one study that looked at um, false positive to fentanyl amino assay, which would be like your urine drug screen. Uh, and they said, all right, first off, acetylfentanyl would obviously cause a false positive because you know that's a fentanyl group with just a single um, acetyl group added to it. But this is really interesting. Risperidone can cause a false positive for fentanyl. What? Really? Yeah. And all, of course, it depends on which enzyme-linked amino assay manufacturer. But now look up the structure of fentanyl. So fentanyl will not typically trigger an opiate um, urine drug screen because usually they're looking for a morphinan or some kind of uh, structure that's really common to the actual opiates that are de derived from the opium poppy. Um, but fentanyl and risperdal not have a morphinan structure. I'm kind of blown away by this. Well, I see uh, fentanyl has this five carbon, one nitrogen, six-membered ring, which is uh, called a piperidine ring. Uh, and that is attached via the nitrogen group two carbons away from a benzene ring. And risperidone has the exact same piperidine group located two carbons away. Oh, yeah. Uh, attached by the nitrogen to it's not a benzene, but it is a um, a six-membered ring with a carbon-carbon double bond. So I can I can see the structural homology here. I mean, it looks exactly the same. Now the study actually is telling me that this structural homology that the their enzyme-linked amino assay is is attacking on risperidone that fentanyl also have. Has is called um, an alkyl piperidine. Um, it is. So they both have it. So that's kind of interesting. Now you have me thinking, though. You've piqued my interest with risperidone. So since paliperidone, or in Vega, yeah. is the metabolite of risperidone, would paliperidone also probably give you a false positive? Well, let's see here. Because you asked. They actually said that risperidone and its metabolite, 9-hydroxyrisperidone, were found to cross-react with fentanyl amino assay. Now, is the 9-hydroxyrisperidone the same as paliperidone? Hold on. Gosh, you are too smart for your own good. Yes, that is the exact same thing. Paliperidone is 9-hydroxyrisperidone. Wow, fascinating. Here, I'll, I'll put the study in the chat. So, okay, uh, good internet user. If you are on risperidone, that might be what's causing your false positive for fentanyl. You know, talking about all the structure, it's actually a good reminder. So, you know, there's piperidine in fentanyl. Piperidine derivatives are used for a lot of antipsychotics. 
it's a good way to to keep to remember that you know fentanyl is actually a pretty serotonergic yeah, drug, and there's some case reports of fentanyl induced serotonin syndrome out there. So nice little caveat. All right, you got one for me. This might be a tricky one. I just I haven't seen this drug in a long time, so it caught my caught my eye. Carisoprotol timeline is the title of this post. So, carisoprotol is a substance that is very odd. Sometimes I take 750 milligrams and feel an intense euphoria after 30 minutes. And sometimes I take 1500 milligrams, which was double 750, what, he, what this person said, and feel mild effects. Why does this happen? Also, is there a delayed onset? It's hitting after two hours or more. Hmm. Well, let's go ahead and just assume positive intention and that this is a prescribed medication because <laughs> if it is not, they just shouldn't be trying to take it at all. How about that? So they're wondering why there appears to be a delayed onset in the effect and a paradoxical reduction in activity with increasing doses. Is that yeah, correct? That is, yes, that's, that's, a, that's a great interpretation. That be. is interesting. Now, this is Soma. This is an old school drug. The brand name, there's, it's sold on the brand name Soma. Hmm. According to Carissa Pertle's Wikipedia page. <laughs> so it's actually a carbamate. Oh. I guess it's, so it's related to some of our favorite uh, insecticides. Okay. Now, it's actual mechanism. I think this is one of those drugs that is so old that we just accept that it works and we don't know its mechanism. <laughs> you know, people are like, oh, muscle relaxants. There's so many quote-unquote muscle relaxants out there. Diazepam, uh, you know, uh, Tizanidine, uh, you have... Probamate, metaxalone. None of these are actually muscle relaxants. These are brain relaxants. The only real muscle relaxant is a paralytic, like yes. Rocuroni. So these don't really help you relax your muscles. They, they kind of just make you care less that your muscles are spasming. Now, there was, I mean, a whole slew of research, I think, back in the 70s. They looked at the antispasmodic properties of benzos and et cetera. And, yeah, okay, whatever. In the end, they all just make you sleepy. Uh, now, I, what is the actual pharmacology of this drug? Let's see. All right. The mechanism of action that they supply and up to date, not yet clear, <laughs> but many effects have been ascribed to its central depressant actions. It blocks interneuronal activity, okay, and depresses polysynaptic neuron transmission in the spinal cord and reticular formation of the brain. And is metabolized by CYP2C19 to meprobamate. <laughs> okay, not a super helpful mechanism. Now, I don't think that at higher doses um, we lose receptor selectivity like with some other drugs. For instance, mirtazapine, at a lower dose, we use it for its anticholinergic effect, but at higher doses, we start to get some um, stimulating effects because it loses its receptor selectivity and it starts to hit more of the. Um, or uh, causes more release of adrenergic neurotransmitters um, or opioids, which are kind of stimulating at low doses, but then at higher doses are sedating. And I don't think it flips into a partial agonist at a higher dose, which is sort of what they're inferring here. Yes. Where increasing dose leads to decreasing receptor stimulation. 
probably has to do much more with other properties than this person's specific dose that they're taking, like whether they have co-ingestions involved. So it's a sedative. Obviously, if you have other GABAergic drugs on board, like ethanol or benzodiazepines, it's going to have a synergistic effect. That might be an issue. Probably has something to do. If I had to bet, the kinetics of absorption might be altered. Well, I guess we don't know. My guess would be either she has variability in her CYP2C19 meprobate uh, production uh, uh, after taking a cardiacipril. Perhaps she was on an inducer at one point, and at this point she's off and thus having different effects. Um, Or there's some kind of effect from absorption that's leading to significant alteration, or it's patient-specific factors with each unique encounter with the drug that, that change the amount that she's requiring. That's my guess. Nice. Uh, yes. That's, I mean, I, I, so when I read this, I was first taken aback by someone's trying to use carsoprotol, which I mean, like you mentioned some of these muscle relaxers, quote unquote, probably work more at a central nervous system level and it's not yeah, a clear muscle relaxant per se. Granted, if you're, if you're um, sedated or if there's enough anxiolytic on board, you're not going to be contracting your muscles like you usually would. So there's possibly some indirect muscle relaxant in some way. Um, I didn't think about the, uh, the absorption or the uh, uh, 2C19 metabolism to, to meprobamate, but those are, um, those are pretty interesting observations. I think it was, uh, I have a couple of friends who used to work at the Walgreens on the Vegas Strip. This was part of the Vegas cocktail. Soma, diazepam, and and it used to be Norco, but now it's Tramadol. (laughs) Wow. These are all the drugs that uh, their primary care provider could call in over the phone because they were not scheduled to. (laughs) Wow. Wow. All right, I got one more for you, and then maybe we could jump to case. Does that sound okay? That's fine. How do I make LSD? What? <laughs> what is the process of making LSD? I love the first comment on that post. All right, this is not the question, but the first comment on that post was, if you don't know how, you shouldn't be trying. <laughs> if you're asking this question, you should not be trying, which I, can't, I have to agree. Let me call Alexander Shulgin for you. Let me <laughs> call, uh, call Albert Hoffman. So here is... The next question. I'm currently on a low dose of Prozac, 40 milligrams daily. I have tried LSD before. I was taking an SSRI and it was great. I want to try it again, but I'm not sure if it's dangerous. How likely is serotonin syndrome if I mix them? Is it super dangerous? Does anyone have experience with mixing these drugs? Well, uh, unfortunately, I don't have, uh, or fortunately, maybe, I don't have experience mixing either of those drugs or using them by themselves. This is just always the question. When we get calls about these LSD or dimethyltryptamine or psilocybin, how how many of them are going to get serotonin in it? We get this all the time in terms of ingestions. And I'm always thinking to myself, all right, well, you know, are these guys at a higher risk of serotonin syndrome that I'm going to have to deal with clinically? So let's say you get a consult. You have a kid who shows up in the ER, they're on fluoxetine or whatever SSRI, and uh, they're a little bit agitated because they just took LSD and you get a call from the ER and they're saying, you know, is this kid going to develop serotonin syndrome? Do I need to send him to the unit to ob them and make sure they don't get clonus or 
hyperthermia? What do you think? Well, I, I think, I mean, I think it just depends on their, their presenting symptoms. I mean, probably, you know, mild serotonin toxicity, I think might go, might go unnoticed. Right. That's why I think there's no way to do a point estimate of how, you know, how likely it is to develop serotonin syndrome on really any drug because it's going to be missed in most clinical cases. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, in, unless there's spontaneous clonus, you know, uh, it's, or if someone does, you know, try to induce lower extremity clonus, um, I, I, you know, they might get missed sometimes. I think this gets back to, a, you know, the old toxicology adage of the dose makes the poison, right? I mean, it's highly unlikely with a single substance like fluoxetine that you're going to get severe serotonin toxicity. Um, obviously, your risk would likely increase with the addition of another, another serotonergic agent. Right. You know, multiple mechanisms of serotonergic stimulation is what I really think of as the highest risk. I definitely worry about it with MAOIs because yeah. you're, you're increasing serotonin release, reducing its metabolism and increasing stimulation. And clinically, I rarely, you know, we'll see, you know, especially single drug, even if it's large amounts, you know, I think it's pretty, pretty rare to see, see severe serotonin toxicity. Again, maybe they have some mild serotonin toxicity and it's just, you know, we just kind of don't recognize it or call it that because as much as I would love to fit all these patients in a box, I, I, I don't live in the absolute world anymore. I I just should be thought of more of a spectrum, right? You have mild serotonin toxicity, moderate, severe serotonin toxicity. Now you can consider, you know, anything with a, Anyone with a neuromuscular abnormality, a um, altered mental status, and some autonomic dysfunction, and you can use the hunter hunter's criteria. I would prefer to call it just severe serotonin toxicity. So I, I yeah, I think what you're saying is it's impossible to estimate someone's true risk. You need to just look at the patient in front of you, and if they have symptoms, well, then they're more likely to develop more. Uh, well, I, here's my question: What drugs make you scared of serotonin syndrome? What, what would they need to take? Are you more worried about serotonin syndrome with methamphetamine or with LSD? Uh, probably. I mean, I think probably amphetamines. Yeah. Just think of a meth agitation. You're hyperthermic, tachycardic, add in a little clonus and you got serotonin syndrome. Yeah. First case I ever saw was a bad meth ingestion. A lot of people forget no. the potent serotonergic properties. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming a HT2A. Oh, that is the perfect segue for the research that I did for this little question. <laughs> okay, so which serotonin receptor needs to get stimulated? <laughs> you know, you have, you know, something like seven different serotonin receptors, uh, and each one of those has subtypes in them. So you have 5-HT1, 5-HT2, then you have 5-HT2A, 5-HT2B, uh, and it goes on. I think there's something like 30 serotonin receptors. So, so which one is actually most correlated with serotonin syndrome. And that one, I believe, at least in animal studies from the last review I read, uh, the 5-HT2A receptor mm-hmm. is the most um, associated with development of hyperthermia. Uh, so that's kind of thought to be implicated. What I found really interesting is that LSD is actually only a partial agonist at 5-HT2A. Wow. I did not know that. Which that makes me wonder, you know, is this going to be able to create as potently serotonergic of an effect as other tryptamines. It is incredibly potent 
uh, in terms of its affinity for the 5-HT2A receptor. So if you actually looked at the binding affinities, the disassociation constant for LSD is 0.004 micromolar. Do you think people would know what a disassociation constant is? I don't know. Who's listening to this podcast? I don't know. I mean, if people should be curious, if they don't know what it is, they should look it up. You think somebody's going to look something up afterwards? <laughs> probably lucky that they're listening this far. Yes, you should. Yes, you should explain what it is. All right. Well, we'll keep it really simple. Uh, when when pharmacologists do their cool, you know, binding studies, um, it's the amount of drug that they have to add to a solution to displace another drug that's binding a receptor. So for instance, let's say you have like something that's binding the 5-HT2A receptor. It's how much LSD I have to put into solution to knock 50% of that binding agent off the receptor. So if I don't need very much LSD, it means it's super potent for that receptor. Um, so the lower amount you need, the more potent it is. So the KI for, uh, so I found a nice review that shows the KI for LSD for the 5-HT2A receptor is 0.0 zero four micromolar uh, for context other tryptamines such as dimethyltryptamine the active ingredient in ayahuasca or whatever businessman's lunch joe rogan loves it you know mm-hmm. um, the ki for that is 0. 0.04 so tenfold less potent than lsd uh, other drugs like psilocin which is the active ingredient in psilocybin has a ki for the 5-hc2a of about 0. 0.25 so that's about a hundredfold less potent than LSD at the 5-HC2A. And things like MDMA or what, what, phenylethylamine. So for instance, mescaline is a phenylethylamine, which is more in the class of, of um, they more mimic catecholamines, so are more adrenergic drugs like MDMA. Um, the KI for that drug is 6.2, so uh, micromolar. So that's nearly... I don't know, a few thousand fold less potent than LSD for the 5-HG2A receptor. But LSD is a partial agonist. Now, but now you have me thinking even more. If it's a partial, you know, analogous to a partial mu opioid receptor agonist like buprenorphine. Yeah. If someone is someone has serotonin toxicity from uh, let's hypothetically say they could get it from their prescriptions or their SSRI, including linazolid or an MAOI or other cases. You give LSD to them, will that will that block it and yeah, does it, it? Would it actually reduce their effectiveness? Now, the other thing I would think is that if you're chronically on an SSRI, do you have downregulated 5-HT2 receptors? You probably do because you're inhibiting serotonin reuptake, so then you're 5-HD2 receptors postsynaptically are chronically stimulated and you'll probably downregulate. So you probably yeah. need a higher dose to get serotonin syndrome. Yeah, that's, okay. no, that is. At least in theory. As we said, this is not evidence-based. It's, it's probably vastly more complicated than the theory. <laughs> the <laughs> fact that 5-HD2A is associated with serotonin syndrome. I mean, I know there's other neurotransmitters involved, but it's, that's interesting to think about. But interesting topic you know i we're not condoning that that person use lsd or at all but uh the interaction between those drugs could warrant more study and and truly i'd love to understand from a clinical bedside management perspective how often 
is serotonin syndrome occurring with these tryptamines? Toxo here, reminding you that these discussions are entirely theoretical and are simply an interesting way to apply pharmacologic concepts to simplified models of a complicated disease. These discussions are not meant to imply that certain illicit substances are safer than others and the hosts are not encouraging their use. Taking any unregulated illicit substances with potent psychotropic effects poses serious health risks and exposes users to unregulated dosing and potentially contaminated substances. If you are struggling with substance use visit samsha.gov or call 1-800-662-4357 for help finding treatment. Anyway, so I thought those were some interesting things and they bring up some, some fun talking points, but maybe that, do you have any more you wanted to dive into? Uh, no, that we can save them for a episode, a later episode. All right. All right. Well then maybe let's go on to the clinical cases. Yeah. So the way we're going to do this is that one of us is going to read through uh, a clinical case without giving away what the toxin is. So the goal is for the guesser and the people listening along at home to try to identify the toxin based on the signs and symptoms of exposure or possibly learn something by listening to our toxic differential while we talk about the exposure. And uh, hopefully be able to identify and treat these toxins in one of their own patients, mm -hmm. should that unfortunate event ever occur. Okay, you ready for your first one, Matt? Yeah. Hey folks, it's Ryan. I wanted to take a minute to talk about something before we jumped into the cases. You are about to hear Matt and myself discuss some cases of fatal poisoning. We were not involved in the care, and the only information we have comes from anonymously written case reports from an annual scientific review of poisonings that anyone can access. For us and those listening, we have no connection to what happened, which can make it easy to be detached from the true tragedy that occurred. Like when you hear about a death from the distant past. So while these cases to us are stories that teach the severe manifestations of poisoning to others. These were real people that tragically lost their lives too early due to the toxic effects of poisons. So we wanted to take a moment to express our sadness for anyone, patients or loved ones who have been affected by poisoning or overdose death. While these outcomes are not what we would like, we are grateful for the valuable lessons that they teach us. And we hope that by reflecting on these cases, we may prevent the same outcome in the countless others that are exposed to these same poisons each year, as all poisoning deaths are preventable, and even one is too many. Secondly, patients that we're about to describe took some of these substances with an intent to harm themselves, which might be disturbing for some to hear about. If you have ever contemplated suicide, someone is here to help you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Somebody cares about you. Okay, let's hear about the cases. 40-year-old uh, male presented to the ED after four days of use of this substance as a weight loss supplement. He was unresponsive with dilated reactive pupils, high blood pressure, tachycardic to 130s, and temperature was 40 degrees Celsius. His labs were essentially normal, but he did have hyperkalemia to 5.6, a bicarbonate of 18, 
NIN gap was 12. His BUN was 66. Creatinine, 1.6. His CPK was 6291. His lactate was normal. Calcium was low. He had actually had some liver sweat going on, AST, ALT elevation. His ABG showed a pH of 7.2. He had a PCO2 of 49 and a PO2 of 180. EKG showed sinus tack with some PVCs. Mm -hmm. Patient was intubated and aggressively cooled. Received IV fluids, benzos, and dantrolene. On day two, Temperature was 37. He remained unresponsive, required vasopressors, developed acidosis, and worsened in kidney function despite bicarbonate. Family opted for comfort measures, and the patient passed away on day six. So showed up, hyperthermic, tachycardic, and a little bit of rhabdo, taking something for weight loss, intubated and cooled, but progressed to renal failure. All right. It's a good case. No, unfortunate. Um, so... Uh, was it a weight loss supplement or did it say something for weight loss? It was a weight loss supplement. It was a weight loss supplement. Okay. So every time I think about weight loss substances, um, weight loss substances or substitutes or substances for weight loss, there's a few things that pop in my head. Um, one is always caffeine. Just yeah. It's one of the most widely used drugs. Uh, it's easy to get. Oh, yeah. Easy to drink in coffee. I just had some. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the first things. However, when I think about cases like this, caffeine being a methylxanthine, you know, obviously you can get tachycardia. You can get hyperthermia. Um, I expect hypokalemia when I think of methylxanthines, though. I'm with you there. And I don't think, from what I heard, I don't think this patient was hypokalemic. No, they were hyperkalemic. Um, other weight loss supplements, uh, I think of some other stimulants, whether it be uh, amphetamines, prescription amphetamines, or illicitly used amphetamines. Um, and of course, the, the weight loss prescription, phentermine taken yes. off market for a while for causing heart attacks and coming back in. Ephedrine, you know, is a classic one that there were, there were major or, or professional athletes even using. You know, it's, I mean, so it, it's possible. And again, you'll see tachycardia. You'll, and anytime I hear a tox patient with, uh, that's hyperthermic, that's, that's usually what scares me the most. And that's what usually we have to address. So aside from infection and, you know, possibly other causes of fever, um, I, I think of stimulants, I think of methylxanthines. I'm assuming this patient's not going to be on theophylline and it's probably mm -hmm. a weight loss supplement. My other concern is, and especially with a, uh, with a death is dinitrophenol that, and that is probably going to be my, my, my guess. And, and yeah, I mean, you can think of other uncouplers of, and, and that's basically what dinitrophenol does, right? It's a, it messes up the proton gradient, makes ATP energy production, you know, less efficient. Yeah. Um, 
there's oxidative phosphorylation goes. And there's a lot of other drugs that do this. Salicylates can do it as well. So, you know. Oh, yeah. The bodybuilding community, that's something like the ephedrine stack. You're supposed to take aspirin and, and ephedrine to increase your, your fat oxidation and, and increase energy consumption. So exactly. dinitrophenol, normally you make energy after you store it as potential energy in the form of hydrogen in the mitochondria. Um, and then that, the hydrogen shuttles across the mitochondria and you store it as ATP, and then you can use that ATP, at, which is uh, to move your muscles and et cetera. Dinitrophenol allows hydrogen to just flow through the mitochondria without storing any of that potential energy as chemical energy. So then you have to release all the energy and it gets expressed as thermal energy. And that's what we get hyperthermic patients. Somebody described it really well to me. Probably heard it honestly in another podcast, but, uh, Dinitrophenol is like uh, putting your car in neutral and revving your engine as hard as you can. It's going to heat up. You're, you know, you're still burning everything. You're just not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's a it's a great um, great example. I like that. This so, was a bad case. I mean, you hit it right on the nose. All the really interesting stuff about dinitrophenol wasn't really in this case. It makes you yellow, <laughs> like Homer Simpson. Oh, yeah, that's. Uh, and additionally, uh, I mean, the fascinating aspect, they don't talk about what they were paralyzed with for RSI, but so there's this concern that if you paralyze somebody with succinylcholine, which is what we call a depolarizing paralytic, uh, so you remember, you can't make ATP when you're on dinitrophenol. You, you're really bad at it. So you can be ATP depleted. You actually need ATP to relax your muscles, not contract it, which is why people go into rigor mortis when they die because they run out of ATP after the muscles have contracted and you don't have any energy to relax the muscles. Well, if you're on dinitrophenol and we give you this medicine, succinylcholine, which forces you to contract all your muscles, you can go into early rigor mortis while you're still alive which is terrifying. And that's usually accompanied with a massive spike in your carbon dioxide levels, uh, severe acidosis, hyperthermia, and usually death. These are scary drugs. Yeah. Very scary. Oh, well, anything else you would have done for that patient? I mean, um, moved and cool. Well, aggressive cooling, you know, was uh, one of the, uh, and again, with any tox case that is, is hyperthermic like this, aggressive cooling, not just using a cooling blanket, but uh, convection and evaporation with um, water and fans. If they, you, you can have, if you get an ice bath, um, that's probably one of the, the fastest ways to cool somebody. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you need, um, you need aggressive cooling measures and that's uh, that makes for, scary cases sometimes from how they're describing this case i think the patient presented a little bit too late seems like they they arrived with unresponsive dilated pupils they already had a cpk elevation which i'm sure you developed rhabdo earlier on dinitrophenol but it makes me think maybe um mm -hmm. that they were down for a while they're hyperkalemic i don't think they showed up walking and talking um so my guess is prognosis was already poor when they arrived, even though they did effectively cool him. You know, it continued to, to develop uh, worsening renal function and probably had CT that demonstrated some poor prognostic signs and called it at that time. Mm -hmm. All right. Nice work, sir. Very interesting. I like this. All right.
Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the scenario, a 53-year-old female presented with methemoglobinemia after chronic abuse of this substance. Poppers. Past medical history uh, is chronic UTIs, a recent admission for methemoglobinemia. Oh, phenazepuridine. Anyways, keep going. <laughs> Physical exam uh, appeared jaundiced, confused, uh, blood pressure of 154 over 77, heart rate of 108, uh, respiratory rate of 16, O2 sat was 78%, uh, which was 100% on a non rebreather, and a temp of 37 degrees Celsius, med hemoglobin level of 46. Uh, an ABG was drawn with a pH of 7.32, PCO2 of 44, PO2 of 67. Hemoglobin was 9.2. On day two, her potassium was 9.3, creating a 3.1, the lactate of 11.2. Wow. All right. Well, I think I've got some information that I need. So first off, I've got a jaundiced, confused 52-year-old with a met hemoglobin of 46% and a hemoglobin of 9.2, which would be anemic in a normal person, but 50% of her hemoglobin is met hemoglobin, so she has a functional hemoglobin 4.5, I guess. So clearly is going to have some shock issues in that scenario in terms of oxygen distribution. And then the jaundice, I'm assuming, do you have a bilirubin? I'm sure it's through the roof. She's... They don't give me a bilirubin. No. No. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I'm saying that because I think it would be reasonable that maybe hemolysis is occurring here and that's where the elevated T bilirubin would be coming from. I mean, I assume it's elevated if they're jaundiced. Uh, whatever she took is inducing that hemoglobinemia, probably has excessive oxidative stress, and then is hemolyzing. So now we're seeing uh, hemoglobin spill from the red blood cells, get metabolized into or conjugated into bilirubin. Now we have hyperbilirubinemia. The potassium of 9.3 on day two could also probably be from hemolysis. I mean, you know, we get hemolyzed samples all the time and potassium's through the roof. Do they mention EKG changes? Uh, there are no EKG changes. That's surprising. I mean, if, if you hemolyze blood in your tube, that's not a problem. If you hemolyze blood in your blood, that is a problem. <laughs> um, now, with the history of chronic UTIs, well, okay, first, it's not that normal to be on an antibiotic for UTI prophylaxis. It's not generally recommended. And I don't know of any antibiotics that cause methemoglobinemia reliably. But since I know I have to guess a toxin, and, and I know that phenazepyridine is generally associated with causing methemoglobinemia, and somebody who has chronic UTIs might chronically be taking phenazepyridine, which isn't to treat or prevent infection. It's, it's to treat dysuria associated with uh, a urinary tract infection. So she might have them frequently and frequently need to take it. So I'm going to put that high on my differential. So drugs of abuse, meaning used for euphoric effect, uh, not in its intended manner, I would be considering inhalants. Uh, 52-year-old female, uh, but who knows what they like to do. Didn't, certainly didn't. Uh, so the inhalants I'd be worried about would be the nitrites. So poppers, she could buy at a gas station. You fill a balloon up with them, you suck them in, and then you get hypotensive and you get a little dizzy, and apparently it's fun. Known for their vasodilatory effects, which have made them popular at certain raves and things like that. 
Um, but if she is abusing a substance, I'm going to be more leaning towards the poppers. Uh, I guess we could check her well water for gram negative bacteria to see if they're making nitrites. I guess that's only for kids, huh? Never mind. <laughs> um, did she get methylene blue? She did. You want me to read the rest of the? Yeah, drop drop some more in there. Okay. She remained confused, tachycardic, and hypertensive with uh, renal insufficiency or brownish urine. Uh, she was given a total of five milligrams per kilo of methylene blue. Wow. With a repeated methemoglobinemia. Uh, met hemoglobin level of 26.4%. Huh. And I guess my next question would be, this would help me narrow down what the toxin is. Mm-hmm. Did the met, did the, so first off, that's great. Uh, did they give me any ethnicity? Caucasian, African-American? No. So I always worry about met, uh, giving methylene blue in G6PD deficient patients because it's not methylene blue that actually does the reducing of iron. It actually is just more of an electron shuttle where it'll take an electron from mm-hmm. something, uh, usually from electrons or reducing power that's built up um, by G6PD. Yep. Um, so methylene blue will actually take an electron uh, and then shuttle it over to your oxidized ferric iron and reduce that. But if you don't have any of that um, reducing power because you're G6PD deficient, uh, you can actually end up stealing an electron directly from iron and oxidizing even more iron. And you can actually worsen hemolysis or you, you can either cause hemolysis or worsen your methemoglobinemia, at least in theory. Mm-hmm. In which case we treat those people usually with high dose vitamin C. Uh, now, usually if you're taking an oxidant and it's an acute exposure, it oxidizes and goes away, you should only have an elevated methemoglobinemia for you know, the duration of time until you treat them with methylene blue. But if it rebounds, you might be dealing with a highly fat-soluble agent, um, like some of the aniline-derived herbicides or even uh, benzocaine. And dapsone, I do believe, can cause a prolonged... Uh, could she be on Dapsone for the UTI? No, that doesn't make any sense. So I'm still sticking with Azo because the only clue you gave me was chronic UTIs. So. And phenazopyridine is the correct answer. Wow. All right. Wow, interesting case. Sad outcome. The dangers of UTI overtreatment. On day two, she, like you mentioned before with her, with her shock, she was starting on norepinephrine for hypotension. Uh, ended up receiving an exchange transfusion, I'm assuming, because they were already pushing their dose of methylene blue. Um, and then, fortunately, she was she died during transfer to a tertiary care hospital. Oh, man, that's rough. Yeah. That's wild, though. Five mg per kilo is definitely pushing the dose. I think 7.5 mg per kilo is where a lot of people cap. Now, I, I only ask this because they don't give us this information, but what if she was 130 kilos and they gave her five mix per gig? <laughs> I do not know what the volume and distribution of methylene blue is. but Well, I'm, antidote dosing and obesity is one of the... Uh... It's likely, I got to imagine, it's pretty water-soluble. I think I would air. Well, you know what? At least you have a drug that you can directly measure your effect on. So you could just give enough, give until you see a reduction in the methemoglobin. Uh, is that a reduction? When they develop serotonin syndrome, one of the two. 
Yeah, they got a reduction. It was just not, you know, wasn't but, was as well. pronounced. So did they did they give too much methylene blue, which ended up, you know, if her ideal body weight was 65 kilos, they may have given her 10 migs per keg of methylene blue based off her ideal body weight. Yeah, that's fair. Are you supposed to do it on idea? I, I don't know. That's why I'm asking. I I guess its its effect is limited to the blood, kind of like heparin. So, yeah, in theory, you don't need it as much because your blood volume doesn't increase with your body size one to one. But you would get drug steel probably into other compartments. I don't know. That's that's one for the rabbit hole, Matt. Okay, a thirty-eight-year-old male was found in a car partially off the road. They had previously threatened police about having chemicals in the car, which could kill them. A haze was seen in the car, and a note on the window was placed. <laughs> Past medical history of substance abuse, previous suicide attempts. The clinical course on arrival, uh, EMS found the patient deceased. Autopsy noted skin had a faint bluish-green discoloration. And uh, at the time, post-mortem subclavia blood demonstrated a thiosulfate level of 9 milligrams per liter. Hmm. That's, that's all I can really give you. So, if we're dealing with chemicals in a car, I am going to surmise that this was an inhaled, inhaled toxin, most likely. Every time someone thinks of cars and toxins in cars i think most people would think of carbon monoxide which is possible but the the note on the car would uh make me feel like that is not what this is going to be there was what you mentioned something i think that that might give me an idea i think it was a bluish was a bluish green coloring discoloration of the skin on the skin so when i think of colors on skin bluish green you know this wouldn't be something like borax which can cause blue green hematemesis or blue green emesis and christmas toxin yeah and and red skin i think of hydrogen sulfide and again we're dealing with an inhaled toxin here so i wouldn't imagine it could be uh, sulfuric acid granted you would need if you're making hydrogen sulfide, you might need sulfuric acid to actually make hydrogen sulfide. Um, and again, if you have a high enough concentration in a tightly enclosed space and you're in there long enough, your soak time, uh, you could definitely have some pretty significant effects. Um, I would imagine there would probably some other be some other physical exam if it was just yeah very costing essentially being bathed and yeah I would, yeah there should be some other physical exam findings if you're you're bathed in a, a caustic but you know when you think about hydrogen sulfide manure pits or sewer gas it's you know it's a knockdown gas so even you know high concentration short period of time even if you're not inside something you know, you could probably see this knockdown effect. So maybe that's where the, the warning came from with the, with the note. So I think my, my guess is going to be hydrogen sulfide. That would be correct, sir. So hydrogen sulfide, I mean, how different from cyanide are we really talking here? Uh, it's got measured thiosulfate levels 
Uh, now, what's funny, you know, sodium thiosulfate is a treatment for cyanide poisoning because cyanide will get conjugated to sodium thiocyanate and then urinated out. But in the hydrogen sulfide exposure, you actually make thiosulfide as part of the metabolic pathway. So you can use that in some cases to confirm exposure. But yeah, so he was threatened police about having chemicals in the car, which could kill them. There was a haze scene in the car and a note on the window that said, warning, hydrogen sulfide. So this is all part of the increasingly disturbing uh, detergent suicide trend that's been going up. Uh, it kind of started in Japan, honestly, and has moved on, uh, found as I think information about these substances has increased, people have caught on. So it's a cellular asphyxiant. So uh, hydrogen sulfide actually binds to cytochrome oxidase and prevents electron transport that al allows us to utilize oxygen uh, for energy production. So even though you might be delivering oxygen to your tissue absolutely fine, your tissues can't use it at all. So you suffocate on a cellular level and cause global tissue death. Very difficult to treat. There's some pretty interesting antidotes I know that people have looked at. So like you, well, you can induce methemoglobinemia just like cyanide. Uh, I've seen case reports of hydroxycobalamin, uh, cobinamide, that uh, you know, novel antidote for these cellular asphyxiants uh, has definitely been looked at. Pretty fascinating stuff. It is. All right, you want to do one more? Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Yeah. This is a uh, this is uh, uh, this is a tough one. I'm ready. All right. Thirty-three-year-old male was found in a PEA arrest after reportedly ingesting a rat poison. Okay. Containing this substance, EMS achieved ROSC. Uh, naloxone was administered without response. His ABG. Uh, showed a pH of 6.86, uh, PCO2 of 38, PO2 of 576. That's a post-intubation ABG, I assume. Yes. Potassium, 4.5, CO2 of 8, BUN of 28, creatinine, 1.64, glucose, 178. They gave you the anion gap, too. What's the gap? 40. <laughs> AST of 122, ALT of 130, INR of 1.9, CPA of 1752. Lactate greater than 20. So gap of 40, lactate of 20. Makes sense. INR is 1.9 and you get rat poison. So I'm dealing with probably four or five different possible scenarios. So this is probably either. Well, the INR of 1.9 is, you know, rat poisons we're looking at, you know, long-acting anticoagulant rodenticides, which we see a little bit less often these days. Uh, unless they're, you know, contaminating synthetic marijuana. Um, you know, we have zinc phosphide, which is super lethal, and yeah, that's probably what this is. Uh, bromethylin is a possibility, but depending on when he ate this rat poison, I don't think I would see effects just yet. As bromethylin needs to be metabolized to desmethylbromethylin to see the, the real toxicity from it. Other options would be uh, vitamin D, which would manifest as hypercalcemia, and I don't think we would see this. While I would be led astray with the INR of 1.9, I think it's actually related to shock liver from his cardiac arrest. So I'm, I'm leaning more towards some kind of a cellular poison, but let's keep listening. All right. A patient was sedated, paralyzed, and intubated, received IV fluids and sedation, but exhibited intermittent jerking movements. Hmm. 
Lactate normalized on day two, his CK increased to greater than 20,000. Oh. Despite treatment for the rhabdomyolysis, his renal function deteriorated, required hemodialysis on day five, and then a poor prognosis and family opted for comfort measures. He died on day nine. Interesting. I mean, there are a few other things that maybe we didn't address. Hold on. Is strychnine still something that they... (laughs) Do they have uh, a, a pistotonus? Are they doing a backbend? It, it doesn't say. It just says it just says jerking movements. Jerking intermittent. And this was at, I, I'm a, I mean, it says sedated, paralyzed, intubated. Nothing about the CT of the head. They don't say. Hmm. But he exhibited intermittent jerking movements. That's. Uh, I mean, neural injury. You know, people have jerking movements all the time. <laughs> Oh, not that. Just in your sedated, paralyzed. Well, and not paralyzed. Um, gosh, I'm trying to go back. I'm reaching. I mean, none of them are inherently pro seizure that I can really think of. I mean, obviously, many of them have neurologic effects. Was there any green vomit or stool? No. All right, I'm going to use that to help rule out bromethylamine. I'll even give you a hint. They give me the percentage here, so it's a whatever the substance is. It's 0.5 percent. 0.5%? Mm-hmm. Well, that makes me think it's more difficult. Isn't that usually 0.5%? Bromethylene's usually 0.1%. Uh, all right, I'm torn. I swear I could just be losing my mind, but I swear there's still strychnine, strychnine rodenticide somewhere, or maybe I'm just making that up. Things are just blurring together. Well, they, I mean, they're still, it's not necessarily whether they're available now. It's that they're just bought 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, but now I can't even remember if those were used regularly as a rodentist. <laughs> I'm going to go, well, all right. They ate it, they swallowed it, right? Ingested. It didn't like rain beforehand. All right, it's either zinc phosphide or it's strychnine. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, I want you to tell you. It's strychnine. It was strychnine? Wow. Oh, kind of a bummer of a case, that poor kid. Yeah. I can't believe I got that, though. <laughs> I mean, I guess I should. Well, all right, 50% got it? It's such an old toxin. Yeah, it's a it's an old, old rat poison. This is why toxicology isn't fair, because even when something becomes totally old and outdated, someone will find an old bottle of it and try to take it. That's like a once in a lifetime poisoning. Is that even around still? Um, I I would I don't know. Maybe it uh, maybe it's still available. I probably only via like commercial licensed um, exterminators. I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, but you remember, it's a glycine receptor antagonist, and glycine yeah. is one of the it's one of a major actually uh, you know uh, inhibitory neurotransmitters in the spinal cord. So if you put a glycine receptor antagonist on on board you're going to you're going to get excitation which essentially leads to this this spasm and it looks like seizures they could be if, you, if someone has a normal mental status it could be more of a uh, maybe a conscious seizure for instance um almost i mean it's almost indistinguishable from from tetanus All right it's, it's the, the infamous mechanism. Uh, spinal cord fracture from 
severe tetanic contractions from strychnine. Yeah, just the the tetanus the tetanus mechanism is preventing the presynaptic release of glycine, right? So it's more of an indirect glycine antagonist versus being a direct glycine receptor. Fascinating. From the Nux vomica plant, if I believe. Strychnine Nux vomica. I'm surprised. I surprised myself there. (laughs) That was, that was good. (laughs) Put the little clap emoji there. (laughs) All right. That was a good time. You know what we need to do? Every Thursday, we just need to get the residents together, and we need to have a little case conference with these. Yeah, just case. Yeah, for sure. That'd be great. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. All right, man. Well, any uh, final thoughts you want to leave before we close this this episode? Uh, I think one of the things. I mean, just when you think about all of these, all the cases, at least the ones that we, the not the ones from from Ask Drugs, but. Um, I think the biggest thing is just to keep a, uh, keep an open, open differential when, when you hear of some of these things, because, you know, not every case, there's a lot of nuance around some of these and not every case fits into a nice little bucket, um, of, uh, a problem. So history is important and, um, well, even with the history, half the time, we don't know what we're treating. <laughs> exactly. But regardless, you know, Frank Polachek said it well. The history and the toxidrome kind of give you the give you the poisonation of <laughs> the poisonation. I like that. But toxidromes aren't aren't perfect, so it's good to keep a keep a wide cast a wide net for for a lot of these. Absolutely. All right. Well, appreciate you being on the show, Matt. I'm good. sure you'll be back on soon. Good time. Can't wait. All right. Later. Wow, Ryan, what a great show today. Thanks, Doxo. All right, Poison listeners. I think that'll wrap it up for today. I hope you learned some interesting things. Drug testing, alkylpaparidines, 5-HT2A partial agonists, rat poisons, methemoglobinemia, and weight loss supplements. I think we covered a lot. Now, remember, today was just two nerds nerding out about toxicology. We tried to make as much of it evidence-based as we could, but we were just talking about a lot of theories. But we were happy you could listen along with us. Don't forget to send in your guesses for our next episode. You can find the toxins that we'll be talking about either at the end of episode 4, which was just before this, the rise of lethal loperamide, or you can go to our Twitter, at LabPoison, or our Instagram, at Tox underscore Talk. And if you think you know what the poison might be, Send your guests to TalksTalk1 at gmail.com so you can participate in the next episode. Be sure to say who you are, where you're from, why you listen to the show, and more importantly, why you think the poison is what you think it is. Thanks so much for listening today. Hope to see you next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Please contact your doctor for any health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222 for poison-related questions. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Subscribe for future episodes and don't forget to share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Goodbye.